you to do is we're going to ask you to follow the recipe exactly. All right. Now, this is a recipe that I was given by Mona Lackey. It is the simplest recipe in the world, so I had to make it a little bit more difficult and add some steps into it. Um, but we're going to see how well you do. So the first step is to empty the pumpkin. This is going to be pumpkin chocolate chip muffins. This is a favorite in my family. My kids love it. Um, and so I need you to empty the contents of the can of pumpkin. Put it in the bowl. No, I didn't say pick up the spoon or the thing. Just empty it into the bowl. You can pick up the can. Yes, pick up the can and empty it into the bowl. No, you cannot. That's not, that's not the... <laughs> you're good, man. You're good. All right. Now, what I want you to do is that's good. That's, that's plenty. That's perfect. Now, what I want you to do is I want you to pick up the box of spice cake uh, and follow along. This is a great recipe. And I want you to empty the spice cake mix into the bowl. Can I use my hands? Yes, you can. You can. Be smart, now, James. <laughs> All right. So now, what we're gonna do? Now that you've got all that in there, is I want you to mix them together. Can I use my hands? You can use your hands. Can I use my spoon? You cannot use your spoon. That's not part of the, the, the recipe. That's, that's later on. Can I use a can no, you cannot. <laughs> the only thing you're allowed to use is your hands. Hold on. You've got you to gotta get, you get in there, man. You volunteered for this. Help me out here. Get your hands in there. Get, dig them in. Dig it. There. <laughs> All right. So you're mixing it. Very, very good. Okay. Now, what I want you to do, once it's all nice and mixed, is I want you to transfer the mixture, which you're doing haphazardly, transfer the mixture into the pan. Okay. We're eating you back to church, right? I'm not. <laughs> all right. So... Put them into the pan here for me. That's perfect. Can I use a spoon? No. <laughs> just, just with your hands. Get them in the pan. <laughs> you want to fill them all the way, or just like? Uh, you know, a little bit here and there. Just, just do two of them for time's sake. All right. All right. So imagine now, if you will, they're all in there. And he's gonna, he's gonna fill them all. I know it. He's gonna do it. Very nice. Very nice. Okay. Now. <laughs> Don't get anything on the floor. Don't you clean that up. Now I want you to pick up the spoon. <laughs> All right. So now I would like you to pick up the uh, non-stick cooking spray. With the spoon? No, no. The other way. <laughs> and I want you to spray the pan down. <laughs> You're looking at me like that's not the right step. Does it seem like it's going to be a little bit now? Yeah, you can still. That's fine. Spray the pan. Spray, yep, just, yep, there you go. Okay, good. Now, uh, open up the little baggie of chocolate chips there and throw them into the mixture. It's looking good. Wish we had like a camera overhead and get his fingers in it. Can you open the bag? <laughs> All right, yeah, you get, yeah just, just chuck them in there. Just chuck them in there. Very good. All right, next step in the recipe, that's perfect. Now I want you to measure out a half a cup of chocolate chips. Thanks. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make you do that. Okay, now 
here, here's what I want you to do. Now that we're, we're good and we're solid, and I'm not going to make you run back to the oven because it's not on, um, and we're just going to put it on the bottom, and that's going to be your oven. Go ahead and put it in the oven. We're going to see how they turn out uh, a little bit later. Let's uh, thank James for getting dirty. It's interesting, you know, as we're going through this, we were following a recipe. The recipe was clearly out of order. Um, and so he had his hands all up in that stuff there. And it was disgusting. Now, I know somebody like, for instance, Di over here. Would you eat these muffins when they came out? No. Now, you, you, you trust James, but who knows, right? I mean, you, you, we don't know that. We, we don't have that information. He was using his hands. Let me tell you, it, it doesn't seem appetizing, does it? it? It actually is a little bit repulsive after seeing him put his greasy paws in there and manhandle all of that. It kind of seemed disgusting. It didn't seem like you would want to eat it. Now, last night, I made a nice batch. Or she covered it up. There we go. I made a nice batch of chocolate pumpkin chocolate, whatever. And they are actually very good. James, wherever he is, he can have one of these. Because I follow the directions. See, when you follow the directions in the right order, it doesn't become repulsive. It becomes something that, in fact, you're attracted to, that you want to be a part of. This morning, we're going to be talking about a recipe, per se. We've been in the book of Ezra. We're going through Ezra and Nehemiah. And we have made it to chapter 7 in Ezra. And what we're going to find out is that Ezra has a little recipe that he wants us to follow. Just to catch you up where we are in the book of Ezra. Ezra, we find that God keeps his promises. We find that he keeps his promises because we know that the, the nation of Israel had been in captivity for 70 years. And he said, okay, you're in captivity, but you're in captivity because of the decisions that you made. These are consequences. And so, I'm going to promise you that I'm going to bring you out of captivity. When we start in chapter 1, we see that he does. He keeps his promises. And we also found out that he can use anything and anyone to fulfill his promises. We got into chapter 2, and we found out that they were on a mission. A mission that uh, it was a little bit too much for them, but they took it on anyway. And so then we see this list of names, which is a seemingly random list of names. We made some sense out of it. What we found out was, in this list of names, we see the line of Christ, the Messiah. We also see the mention of the place of his birth. And so it made sense. Chapter 3, we got into the fact that these people that went back, they had a passion, they had a perseverance to build the temple. They had this arduous task of rebuilding the temple. And of course, that was getting mixed reviews. Then, the last time we met together, we talked about chapters 4 through 6, and while it was a lot of information, we found out that through those chapters, 4 through 6, it carried the same theme along with it. And that was opposition. Every step of along the way, the Israelites, they faced opposition. But what we found out is that our God can take opposition and turn it into opportunity. And so as we approach chapter 7, we're going to notice that if you look at this book... And let's say you have the Bible down and kind of taken a bird's eye view of this book. What you would see is that the first six chapters are really one part. And chapter 7 at the end of the book is another part. So we're going to be starting a new section and we're going to be introduced to someone new. Kind of. I mean, finally after many years and six chapters, we're introduced to the guy whose name is 
on the book, who's in fact the author, the author of Nehemiah. It's believed the author of First and Second Chronicles, and of course, an argument could be made for Esther as well. So Ezra, we find out, is a pretty important piece of history. You don't hear a lot about it. He, in fact, records some of the last bits of history in the Old Testament. So as we get into this new section, we're going to be introduced to him. We're going to see his character. And it's simply just going to set the scene for where we're going to be in the rest of the book. So let's jump into it together. I see it's up here on the screen. So the first thing we see in chapter 7 is this. Now after these things. Now from where we've come, we, we already know what it means after these things. Because the temple is now completed and there was a huge celebration because of it. Now, after these things, there was a gap in between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Commentators agree it's somewhere between 58 and 60 years um, in between those chapters. Not a lot of history is recorded. Then what we see as we move on is we see a, another list of names. And again, looking at this list of names, you're thinking, okay, well, how can we make this relevant? Well, it's not just a list of names. It's actually a genealogy. It's a lineage. And what it is is it's Ezra's line. So we find that his line gets placed or traced back to Aaron, the high priest, who is in fact the brother of Moses. You know him. So what does that mean? What does it mean that we have this lineage, this line that goes back to uh, Aaron? It, it, it means that he belonged, Ezra belonged in the position that he was in. He was in a position where he was leading and preaching and guiding and being in that priestly line proves he's got reason to be there. Not only does he have authority because of his lineage, but he has authority, if you look in verse 6, because the king granted him authority. The king said, basically, look, you can have anything that you want. And so he has authority from his lineage. He has authority from the king, and he also has authority from Almighty God as the hand of God is upon him. As we continue to move through, we see that Ezra is a scribe. A scribe that is skilled in the, man, in, in, in the law of Moses. A scribe is simply this. It's a state secretary or a recorder or a writer. We know it as someone who studies, someone who interprets and copies Scripture. So Ezra, in fact, did have some of the Scripture. He had the Pentateuch. And in the Pentateuch, it says that he was skilled in the Scripture. Skilled means that he was ready and he was quick. That means he knew the, the Scripture so well. He knew the law so well that he was ready to give an answer at a moment's Notice, one author says this, the phrase skilled in the law of Moses tells us that Ezra was swift in the scriptures. He was nimble and quick with the Torah. He knew the contents of the Bible. He understood the contents of the Bible. And he brought the Bible to bear on pressing questions. So Ezra, we find out, has authority. Ezra is a skilled man. And what we're going to find out is this, that he too, much like Zerubbabel in, in the chapters before, he too was going to take a journey back from Babylon to Jerusalem. We're going to see he's not, he's not alone. He's taking people with him. We're not going to get all the details of it in this chapter. Because again, this is just setting up what we're going to find out in the chapters to come. But in the chapters to come, we find out that he takes about 2,000 men with him. In the scriptures, it says that he leaves on the first month and arrives in the fifth month. So he had four months of a journey. And again, we will see those details later. But we're going to come up to verse 9 and 10, which is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. Look at verse 9 with me, if you will. For on the first of the first month, he began to go up from Babylon. And on the first of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, because the good hand of his God was upon him. So it confirms what we already know. He took a trip from Babylon to Jerusalem, 
But here in that, it doesn't say anywhere in there that he didn't make it. Uh, on the contrary, it says that he, he made it. It didn't say he fell into peril, which he does a little bit. There's some issues on the, on the trip. We're going to see that in, in the next chapters. But he got from point A to point B. He was trying to get to point B. Yes, he, he, he met some stuff along the way, but he didn't get derailed, and it didn't cause him to stop his journey. Why? How did he get there on this journey? Well, it says because, notice it, because the good hand of his God was upon him. This really is a great statement about the sovereignty of God. He made the trip because God was with him. He made it because God allowed him to be safe. We've seen already, in their short time together this morning, we've already seen this statement. We glossed over it just for a moment. Look back at verse 6. It says that Ezra had the favor of the king, that the king would give him whatever he requested. Why? Why did he, why did he do that? Because the hand of the Lord his God was upon him. See, he had favor with the king because God's hand was on him. He made it safely on his journey because God's hand was on him. Look, verse 6 is the first of eight times throughout the book of Nehemiah, I'm sorry, Ezra and Nehemiah, that we see the hand of God mentioned. So, what does it mean? Hand really equals power. This, what really what we're talking is this, we're talking about the power of God. The unrivaled, unequaled, unparalleled power of God. It is what causes us to be able to say, if God is for us, who can be against us? See, what he's doing is he's giving a message to the reader. The message to you and I. And the message is this. Everything that has happened, all the success that Israel has seen, yes, they've had ups and downs, but they were no mere acts of men. They weren't successful because they had amazing leadership skills. It wasn't. They didn't succeed in battle because they were great soldiers. They didn't complete the projects that they had because they were amazing craftsmen. No. They didn't get permission to go back into the land because they were on their best behavior or for somehow they were able to manipulate the king into what they wanted to do. No, they were able to accomplish all that they did because the powerful hand of God was on them. It was through his power. It was for his glory. And of course, they shared in the benefits of it. So we see the hand of the Lord is on Ezra. But it begs the question, why? Was there something special about Ezra? Is he better than you or I? Was he better than the people around him? Couldn't God have used anyone to bring reformation to his people? Couldn't God use anyone to bring about repentance to his people? Well, yes, he could have. He didn't. Yes, he could have used anything and everyone. And again, we've proven that through this book in chapter 1. But he didn't. He chose Ezra. We're going to find out as in verse 10 we get a very clear picture about why God's hand was on him. Look at chapter 10 with me. Uh, verse 10, excuse me. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances in Israel. Look, it was not that Ezra was more qualified or more religious, but it was because he placed the utmost of importance on Scripture. This really is a great verse because it really breaks down for, for you and I what we should be doing every day. This is the process. Verse 10 is the recipe, if you will, 
for us to follow every single day. See, the power and the favor of God represented by his hand was on Ezra because he had set his heart on these three, three things. Study, preach, teach. Scripture says his heart was set on them. Meaning he fixed himself on it. He was determined to do it. And he was determined in his heart where his appetites and emotions and his passions rest. So his appetites and emotions and his passions was telling him, this is what I should do. I should start by studying the word of God. This word study in the Greek is, is really, it's, it's seek. It's to seek in prayer and worship to investigate. Some of you guys uh, remember what it's like to be in school. Some of you young people are still in school, and I just said school in summer, and uh, you, you hate me for it. But you can all remember what school was like. You remember that school was, school was hard work. School took dedication and time and energy and determination. And yes, there were times when you just you had to cram for that last second test and you were just trying to shove as much information in your brain as you possibly could so that when you got to the test, you just got all out of paper and then got the rest of it out and you could forget about it, right? But the times when you were interested in something, the times when you really wanted to know about a certain subject, what you do? You investigated it. You sought answers. You memorized certain things. You were seeking. We sung about it this morning in Matthew 6.33. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Matthew 7.7 7 says, Ask and it shall be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Jesus uses the same word seek in Matthew 18.12 when he's telling the story about how the, the shepherd leaves the 99 and goes for the one to seek the one. Look, we know those verses. But perhaps they don't connect as well as they should. What about this? Luke 2, 48. Jesus is with his family. And they go into the town. And Jesus, as soon as he gets to the town, he goes into the synagogue. And he gets left behind by his family. When his family leaves, it's a whole big caravan. They're all leaving. You know how it is. Kids can kind of get lost and shuffle. And they get miles away before they realize, hey, anybody got Jesus? And they go back. And I don't know about you, but maybe you've had your child in a supermarket or something, and you've reached to get something, and you turn around, and they're not there. Maybe they're on the other side, and you're, and you're freaking out, right? And you're, you're, Jesus, where are you? This is what they're saying. Jesus, where are you? When, when they found him, look at what he says. Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. We've been seeking you. Think about it. When you lose something that's so precious to you, and you're scared, and you want to... This is what Mary was feeling. Jesus, we are looking for you. What about in Luke 5, 18 and 19? Jesus had grown up. He was a man. And he was performing miracles. And man, I mean, he was healing people left and right. And people noticed, man, if I just touch the hem of his garment, I can get healed. It says that people were trying to touch him and to get him because they wanted, they were desperate to touch him. They were seeking. If only I could just touch him, maybe I could heal him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to seek him. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to touch him. Let me ask you. Are you desperate for God's word? Maybe another question is, are we even interested in God's word? Do we care about it? Do we want to know more about it? Look, Ezra did, and so he set his heart and his passions and emotions on it. But how often do we find ourselves in the word? How often? Is it, is it, is it only when we, we need something or we, we're seeking answers? Look, 
We find that God's word is profitable and useful for all things. It's, it's an avenue of worship. And yes, it is where we get our answers and we look for it in time of need, but we are to seek it and we are to study it. That's what Ezra did. It's something that we're encouraged to do consistently in the Bible. Colossians 3, verse 1 says, If you have been raised up with Christ, if you're a believer, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Maybe you're not seeking Guess who is? 1 Peter 5, 8. Be on the alert. Your adversary prowls around seeking someone to devour. If we're not seeking, we need to spar. We need to seek and to study His Word. Desire His Word. Love His Word. And when we do, we are going to learn some amazing things in Scriptures. But when you learn great things, what are you supposed to do next with them? Apply them. Practice them. Look back into verse 10. For Ezra had set his heart to study, seek the law of the Lord, and to practice it. How many of you know the name Alan Iverson? Anyone? A few of you? Some of you already know where I'm going. Alan Iverson was a, uh, a short little guard in the NBA. I say short, he was as tall as I was. And um, <laughs> I don't know what this says about me. He was an amazing player. But Alan wasn't a big fan of practice. He just wasn't. Uh, and he got into a lot of trouble. And he went on a rant about practice. And I, and I downloaded the, the transcripts of this because you're going to think I'm making it up. Um, but 15 times in a matter of a couple sentences, he says the word practice. He says, this is him. It's easy to sum up when you're just talking about practice. We're sitting here. I'm supposed to be the franchise player. And we're in here talking about practice. I mean, listen, we're talking about practice. Not a game. Not a game. Not a game. We talk about practice. Not a game. Not, not, not the game that I go out there and die for every night. Not a game, but we're talking about practice, man. How silly is that? We're talking about practice. Dot, 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 dot. But we're talking about practice. What are we talking about? Practice. We're talking about, it's, it's here, trust me. We're talking about practice. <clears throat> Left and right. The man does not like practice. He goes on a rant about practice because... Good for practice at this point. He's already made it. I played sports all my life. Up until now, I'm starting to show. Practice was always told to me as a player. It's important. My coaches, especially in basketball, used to drill these quotes into our heads, and they, they, would, they would yell it to us why we're doing sprints and you know throwing up in the trash can while we're running, all these different things. And my coach would say this. He says, and he's screaming this while we're running, we're all, you know, but it is ingrained in my memory. He says, the will to win is nothing without the desire to prepare for victory. What that means is this. It doesn't matter how much you want to win. If you don't want to practice, it's not going to happen. Now, look, Alan Iverson was an NBA player. He probably didn't need to practice that much, but it was important. How you practice is how you play, is what we were told. What you do in practice will carry over to a game. Look, practice is this. It is to labor about something. To accomplish or produce something. Practice is hard work. It's labor. In practice, you mess up and you fall. But you get back up again. And you dust yourself off. It says in Scripture that Ezra practiced. Some of you have the NIV. It says that Ezra observed. If you have the New King James Version, it says that he prepared his heart to seek and to do it. Practice is about action. Think back to the whole school thing. Those of you who went to college and you picked a major and you went to your major because it, it, it interested you and you, you sought answers and you, and you memorized and 
But what would happen if you graduated and then you decided, I'm not going to use what I just learned? And sometimes it happens because we, we, we switch occupations and like that. But what if you just said, okay, I'm not going to use it for like five years, and then I'll pick it up later? Well, you've heard the term, you use it or you lose it. They used to tell us that when we were taking Greek in Bible college. And over the course of the summertime, I can attest to that. Look, when you study the Word of God, we dig in and we dive into it and we read about it, but we also need to make sure that we are doing it. We're not just committing it to memory, but we're putting it into practice. James 1, 22-25 says become doers, not just hearers. James says, look, if you're just reading the Word of God and you're not doing what it says, you're like a man who looks in the mirror and walks away and forgets what he looks like. So Ezra was determined to study. He was determined to practice, which of course leads us, verse 10, and leads Ezra to want to and to be prepared to teach. See, that's who Ezra was. We find that in the book of Ezra, that he is a teacher. We find that in the book of Nehemiah when they said, Ezra, go ahead, get the word and come and just read it to us, teach us. We know it means to instruct or to train. You all probably get a mental image of a teacher in your mind. A teacher who gets up in front of people, much like I'm doing now, and teaches and talks and projects about the subject they're talking about. That's an accurate picture. Because that's who Ezra was. He spoke to people, he opened the word, he preached, he taught, he confronted them about the decisions and the sins that they were making and the consequences that they would bring. Look, that's who he was. That was his job. That was his position. If you look in the Gospels, you find that Jesus was referred to as a teacher. He was referred to as a teacher. He did teaching. He taught the disciples. Look, over 112 times in the Gospels, the, the, the word in some form or another of teacher is used. It's almost always in reference to Jesus. But let me ask you this. Was Jesus every moment, all the time, everywhere he went, was he always speaking to large crowds? Was he always speaking? Not all the time. He would oftentimes speak through his actions. He would oftentimes speak through his reactions. He would let his walking do the talking. See, to think that you and I always have to be audibly preaching and teaching the word always happen to have the right things to say and quote Bible verses is just not practical. But don't miss this. That doesn't let us off the hook to be ready. You and I should always, as believers, always be ready to have an answer for the hope that we have that lies within us. But so many times you will reach people, you will touch people, you will impact people by your Actions, the way you act and react in different situations, the way you talk to people, the way you talk to your family, to your spouse or your employees or just your peers. But people notice those things. They do. And oftentimes our actions can teach, can teach people about God's love, about God's provision, about His sacrifice, about His Son. Look, we are to be walking, talking, breathing teachers, but that cannot happen unless we are first studying His Word and practicing it. The recipe gets all misunderstood. It's no longer appealing. People will say, ah, you're not, you don't even practice what you preach. I'm not saying you, make, you can't make mistakes. I'm just saying we're supposed to be reading the Word of God and studying it, and then trying to, to show other people about it. But when we go, look, I, I don't need to read, I need to study. 
And then we try to teach somebody. Or we're teaching somebody, but we're not practicing it. The recipe doesn't add up. So what does it take? What does it take to study and to practice and to teach the Word of God? Well, first of all, it has got to come from a place of humility. A place where you and I, we let our selfish ambitions get pushed to the side. Think about this. We're going to go back to verse 6 real quick. In verse 6, the king says to Ezra, you can have anything. He granted him all that he requested. You can have anything. Think about if you were given that blank check. I mean, Ezra could have anything. He could have riches. He could have women. He could have land and houses and feasts. Yet, what did Ezra choose? He chose what was best for God's people. But more importantly, he chose what was best for the glory of God. Look, if we want to be skilled in the Word, we need to give time. We need to give it our energy. We need to give it our resources. We need to push down the thoughts that we've been and say, oh, you, you don't have time to get into the Word of God today. Ah, oh, man, you're too tired to get down to the Word of God. Well, just wait till Sunday and let preacher give it to you. No. It takes denying self. Look, we seem motivated enough when we want certain things. Summer's here. Maybe you're motivated to, to get that, that, that beach body, and so you'll give it time and you'll give it energy. And I missed the boat on that one. Didn't work out for me. But if we want something, we're willing to give the time. Look, if you want to take a class so you can get a raise, so you can make more money, so you can get more stuff, you're going to give it the time, you're going to get the energy, and you're going to give it the resources. If you want it, you're going to do it. So do we want the Word of God? Is it easy to study the Word of God? No. It takes time. Certainly not easy to practice it. Don't they say practice makes perfect? Well, you and I as believers, hopefully we're practicing what you preach, but if you're anything like me, I'm light years away from being perfect. Because wouldn't it be so much easier for you and I to be able to respond to personal attacks by attacks of our own and just tearing other people down or talking behind their back or spreading false information or taking something of theirs that's not... Look, it's, it's not always easy to do the right thing. We know that. But as the saying goes, it is always right. To do the right thing. Look, it takes letting go of our selfish attitudes and trying best, our best, in everything that we do to bring Him honor and glory. And once we're practicing it, then, then we can teach it, we can model it, we can have influence on others and disciple others, just like Ezra was doing with his people. He modeled a godly life, but it started with a place of humility. Ezra was humble. But look, be sure to recognize this. It wasn't just about his humility. That wasn't, that wasn't the reason that he had success. That was a very, very small piece of it. He was a very, very small piece of it. But remember, the hand of the Lord was on him. You and I, we are going to struggle with this recipe. To study, to practice, to preach, to model it. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to fall. But we're not going to have success because of our efforts. We're going to have success because the hand of the Lord God is upon those that love Him and know Him. But I wonder, Ezra was really, he was really committed. I mean, he was a godly man. He lived and he studied and he scriptured, studied scripture and he practiced it. And he went to great lengths to do that. But I, I wonder why. It's because of this. Ezra knew something 
that you and I know that the world is very skeptical about. And again, it's found back in verse 6. It's something that we glanced over at first. But let's read it again. It says, Ezra went up from Babylon. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. He was skilled in the law of Moses. Don't miss it. Which the Lord God of Israel had given. This fact that God had given the word is oftentimes things that we just take for granted, that we just glance over. But do you realize what Ezra is doing here? Is he is admitting to himself and to the people around him that the works of Moses, the Torah, the Pentateuch were not merely works of human hands, but they were given by God. They were given by God. It reminds me of the creation account in Genesis. We find some interesting things. Genesis 1, 17, it says, God placed them in the heavens to give light. He's talking about stars. It's the same exact word that is used for God gave the scripture. He placed them in the stars. Meaning, I mean, he, he had a whole basket. I mean, just, I'm going to put one here and put He placed them. It's the same word. Genesis 9, 13, I set my bow in the clouds and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. I don't know how many of you were up at 5 a.m. this morning, but there was an amazing rainbow that I saw this morning. Before all the clouds and the, oh, the sun's up, it's nice. Before all the clouds came in. After there was a full rainbow. He says, I set my bow in the cloud. Meaning I gave it. I just took it. I drew it. I put it there. Same words. What happened is God gave Moses the word. He breathed it to Moses. It's God's word. See, Ezra knew without a doubt that the book of the law that he was reading, that he was memorizing, that he was studying, that he was practicing and preaching, that it wasn't just man's word. It was God's word. It was given by him to man. Why else would he be so devoted unless he knew it to be true? Do you believe the Bible is God's word? This isn't a question that we can take for granted in churches anymore. Do we believe that God's word is true, inspired by God, that it's inerrant? If you do, I want to challenge you today to do three things. Study it. It's got to start there. Don't get the recipe all mixed up. It gets messy. Study it. Get into it. Read it. Explore it. Find out what God is saying to you. Once you begin to study it, you'll see the things that you need to do. What we need to do next is practice it. But the world is overrun by people who do not practice what they preach. Let's break the mold. Let's break the mold together. And as we practice it, we can begin to teach it and to model it to others. Will you invest in the people around you? And show them by your actions and your reactions, if you're trying to follow him, that you'll share your faith with others. Can we do that? See, what Ezra has given us is he's given us a sweet recipe. One author says it this way. He says, Ezra is a model reformer in that what he taught, he first lived. And what he lived, he had first made sure of in the scriptures. With study... Conduct and teaching put deliberately in the right order. Each of these was able to function properly at its best. Study was saved from unreality. Conduct from uncertainty. And teaching from insincerity and shallowness. Look, when you and I follow the recipe, 
the end result is exactly what it was meant to be. It's not going to be without a mess. It's not going to be without a struggle. It's not going to be without effort and pain. But when we commit to studying God's Word, to practicing God's Word, and to teaching it, I'll tell you, there is no better way to bring about change in a world. There's no better way to bring about change in our communities. There's no better way to bring about change in our churches, in our families, and in your life to commit to studying, practicing, and teaching. Will you commit to that today? That's our challenge. Let's pray. Our God, we are grateful for the challenges that we get in your word. We're grateful for this recipe that Ezra has given us, that you have given us. Well, it's not rocket science. It's not anything that we didn't know when we came in today, but it is sure a good reminder of what it takes to bring about change in a world. And it begins by studying your word, seeking it, wanting it, desiring it. Lord, help us to put our selfish ambitions aside and seek you. Lord, help us to, once we figure out what you want us to do, to practice it and, and, to, and to model it, God. This world is starving for people that are real, that love you, that love your word, and that model it, Lord. That's what I pray for each one of us right now. Thank you so much for this family here, this family of believers. Lord, and as we come to your table, Lord, may you be honored. May you be glorified and lifted up. It's your name we ask all these things. Amen. I ask the gentleman that's going to help out with communion to come forward.